Section 14 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in November 2011. The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 14 whether genius is conscious of its powers. No really great man ever thought himself so. The idea of greatness in the mind answers but ill to our knowledge, or to our ignorance, of ourselves. What living prose writer, for instance, would think of comparing himself with Burke? Yet would it not have been equal presumption or egotism in him to fancy himself equal to those who had gone before him, Bolingbroke or Johnson or Sir William Temple? Because his rank in letters is become a settled point with us, we conclude that it must have been quite as self-evident to him and that he must have been perfectly conscious of his vast superiority to the rest of the world. Alas! not so no man is truly himself but in the idea which others entertain of him the mind as well as the eye sees not itself but by reflection from some other thing what parity can there be between the effect of habitual composition in the mind of the individual and the surprise occasioned by first reading a fine passage in an admired author between what we do with ease and what we thought it next to impossible ever to have done, between the reverential awe we have for years encouraged, without seeing reason to alter it, for distinguished genius, and the slow, reluctant, unwelcome conviction that after infinite toil and repeated disappointments, and when it is too late and to little purpose, we have ourselves at length accomplished what we at first proposed, between the insignificance of our petty personal pretensions and the vastness and splendour which the atmosphere of imagination lends to an illustrious name. He who comes up to his own idea of greatness must always have had a very low standard of it in his mind. What a pity, said someone, that Milton had not the pleasure of reading Paradise Lost. He could not read it, as we do, with the weight of impression that a hundred years of admiration have added to it, a phoenix gazed by all, with the sense of the number of editions it has passed through with still increasing reputation, with the tone of solidity, time-proof, which it has received from the breath of cold, envious maliners, with the sound which the voice of fame has lent to every line of it. The writer of an ephemeral production may be as much dazzled with it as the public. It may sparkle in his own eyes for a moment, and be soon forgotten by everyone else. But no one can anticipate the suffrages of posterity. Every man, in judging of himself, is his own contemporary. He may feel the gale of popularity, but he cannot tell how long it will last. His opinion of himself wants distance, wants time, wants numbers, to set it off and confirm it. He must be indifferent to his own merits before he can feel a confidence in them. Besides, everyone must be sensible of a thousand weaknesses and deficiencies in himself, 
whereas genius only leaves behind it the monuments of its strength. A great name is an abstraction of some one excellence, but whoever fancies himself an abstraction of excellence, so far from being great, may be sure that he is a blockhead, equally ignorant of excellence or defect, of himself or others. Mr. Burke, besides being the author of the Reflections and the Letter to a Noble Lord, had a wife and son, and had to think as much about them as we do about him. The imagination gains nothing by the minute details of personal knowledge. On the other hand, it may be said that no man knows so well as the author of any performance what it has cost him, and the length of time and study devoted to it. This is one, among other reasons, why no man can pronounce an opinion upon himself. The happiness of the result bears no proportion to the difficulties overcome or the pains taken. Materiam superabat opus is an old and fatal complaint. The definition of genius is that it acts unconsciously, and those who have produced immortal works have done so without knowing how or why. The greatest power operates unseen and executes its appointed task with as little ostentation as difficulty. Whatever is done best is done from the natural bent and disposition of the mind. It is only where our incapacity begins that we begin to feel the obstacles and to set an undue value on our triumph over them. Correggio, Michelangelo, Rembrandt did what they did without premeditation or effort, their works came from their minds as a natural birth. If you had asked them why they adopted this or that style, they would have answered, because they could not help it, and because they knew of no other. So Shakespeare says, Our poesy is as a gum which oozes from whence tis nourished. The fire in a flint shows not till it be struck. Our gentle flame provokes itself, and, like the current, flies each bound its chafes. Shakespeare himself was an example of his own rule, and appears to have owed almost everything to industry or design. His poetry flashes from him like the lightning from the summer cloud, or the stroke from the sunflower. When we look at the admirable comic designs of Hogarth, they seem from the unfinished state in which they are left, and from the freedom of the pencilling, to have cost him little trouble, whereas the Sigismunda is a very laboured and comparatively feeble performance, and he accordingly set great store by it. He also thought highly of his portraits, and boasted that he could paint equal to Van Dyck, give him his time, and let him choose his subject. This was the very reason why he could not. Van Dyck's excellence consisted in this, that he could paint a fine portrait of any one at sight, let him take over so much pains or choose ever so bad a subject, he could not help making something of it. His eye, his mind, his hand was cast in the mould of grace and delicacy. Milton, again, is understood to have preferred Paradise Regained to his other works. This, if so, was either because he himself was conscious of having failed in it, or because others thought he had. We are willing to think well of that which we know wants our favourable opinion, and to prop the rickety bantling. 
every step taken in vita minerva costs us something and is set down to account whereas we are borne on the full tide of genius and success into the very haven of our desires almost imperceptibly the strength of the impulse by which we are carried along prevents the sense of difficulty or resistance the true inspiration of the muse is soft and balmy as the air we breathe and indeed leaves us little to boast of for the effect hardly seems to be our own there are two persons who always appear to me to have worked under this involuntary silent impulse more than any others i mean rembrandt and correggio it is not known that correggio ever saw a picture of any great master he lived and died obscurely in an obscure village we have few of his works but they are all perfect what truth what grace what angelic sweetness are there not one line or tone that is not divinely soft or exquisitely fair the painter's mind rejecting by a natural process all that is discordant coarse or unpleasing the whole is an emanation of pure thought the work grew under his hand as if of itself and came out without a flaw like the diamond from the rock he knew not what he did and looked at each modest grace as it stole from the canvas with anxious delight and wonder ah gracious god not he alone how many more in all time have looked at their works with the same feelings not knowing but they too may have done something divine immortal and finding in that sold out ample amends for pining solitude for want neglect and an untimely fate oh for one hour of that uneasy rapture when the mind first thinks that it has struck out something that may last for ever when the germ of excellence bursts from nothing on the startled sight take take away the gaudy triumphs of the world the long deathless shout of fame and give back that heartfelt sigh with which the youthful enthusiasts first wed immortality as his secret bride and then thou too rembrandt thou wert a man of genius if ever painter was a man of genius did this dream hang over you as you painted that strange pictures of jacob's letter did your eyes strain over those gradual dusky clouds into futurity or did those white-vested beaked figures babble to you of fame as they approached did you know what you were about or did you not paint much as it happened oh if you had thought once about yourself or anything but the subject it would have been all over with the glory the intuition the amenity the dream had fled the spell had been broken the hills would not have looked like those we see in sleep that tatterdemalion figure of jacob thrown on one side would not have slept as if the breath was fairly taken out of his body so much do rembrandt's pictures savour of the soul and body of reality that the thoughts seem identical with the objects if there had been the least question what he should have done or how he should do it or how far he had succeeded it would have spoiled everything lumps of light hung upon his pencil and fell upon his canvas like dewdrops the shadowy veil was drawn over his backgrounds by the dull obtuse finger of night 
making darkness visible by still greater darkness that could only be felt. Cervantes is another instance of a man of genius, whose work may be said to have sprung from his mind like Minerva from the head of Jupiter. Don Quixote and Sancho were kind of twins, and the jests of the latter, as he says, fell from him like drops of rain when he least thought of it. Shakespeare's creations were more multiform, but equally natural and unstudied. Raphael and Milton seem partial exceptions to this rule. Their productions were the composite order, and those of the latter sometimes even amount to centos. Accordingly, we find Milton quoted among those authors who have left proofs of their entertaining a high opinion of themselves, and of cherishing a strong aspiration after fame. Some of Shakespeare's sonnets have been also cited to the same purpose, but they seem rather to convey wayward and dissatisfied complaints of his untoward fortune than anything like a triumphant and confident reliance on his future renown. He appears to have stood more alone and to have thought less about himself than any living being. One reason for this indifference may have been that as a writer he was tolerably successful in his lifetime, and no doubt produced his works with great facility. I hardly know whether to class Claude Lorraine as among those who succeeded most, through happiness or pains. It is certain that he imitated no one, and has had no successful imitator. The perfection of his landscapes seems to have been owing to an inherent quality of harmony, to an exquisite sense of delicacy in his mind. His monotony has been complained of, which is apparently produced from a preconceived idea in his mind, and not long ago I heard a person, not more distinguished for the subtlety than the naivete of his sarcasms, remark, Oh, I never look at Claude. If one has seen one of his pictures, one has seen them all. They are every one alike. There is the same sky, the same climate, the same time of day, the same tree, and that tree is like a cabbage. To be sure, they say he did pretty well, but when a man is always doing one thing, he ought to do it pretty well. There is no occasion to write the name under this criticism, and the best answer to it is that it is true. His pictures always are the same, but we never wish them to be otherwise. Perfection is one thing. I confess I think that Claude knew this, and felt that his were the finest landscapes in the world, that ever had been, or would ever be. I am not in the humour to pursue this argument any farther at present, but to write a digression. If the reader is not already apprised of it, he will please to take notice that I write this at Winterslow. My style there is apt to be redundant and excursive. At other times it may be cramped, dry, abrupt, but here it flows like a river and overspreads its banks. I have not to seek for thoughts or hunt for images. They come of themselves. I inhale them with the breeze, and the silent groves are vocal with a thousand recollections. And visions, as poetic eyes avow, hang on each leaf, and cling to every bough. Here I came fifteen years ago, a willing exile, and as I trod the lengthened greensward by the low woodside, repeated the old line, My mind to me a kingdom is. I found it so then, before, and since, 
and shall i faint now that i have poured out the spirit of that mind to the world and treated many subjects with truth with freedom and power because i have been followed with one cry of abuse ever since for not being a government tool here i returned a few years after to finish some works i had undertaken doubtful of the event but determined to do my best and wrote that character of millimant which was once transcribed by fingers fairer than aurora's but no notice was taken of it because i was not a government tool and must be supposed devoid of taste and elegance by all who aspired to these qualities in their own persons here i sketched my account of that old honest signor orlando friscobaldo with which its fine racy acrid tone that old crab-apple gifford would have relished or pretended to relish had i been a government tool here too i have written table talks without number and as yet without a falling off till now that they are nearly done or i should not make this boast i could swear were they not mine the thoughts in many of them are founded as the rock free as air the tone like an italian picture what then had the style been like polished steel as firm and as bright it would have availed me nothing for i am not a government tool i had endeavoured to guide the taste of the english people to the best old english writers but i had said that english kings did not reign by right divine and that his present majesty was descended from an elector of hanover in the right line and no loyal subject would after this look into webster or decker because i had pointed them out i had done something more than any one except schlegel to vindicate the characters of shakespeare's plays from the stigma of french criticism but our anti-jacobin and anti-gallican writers soon found out that i had said and written that frenchmen englishmen men were not slaves by birthright this was enough to damn the work such has been the head and front of my offending while my friend lee hunt was writing the descent of liberty and strewing the march of the allied sovereigns with flowers i sat by the waters of babylon and hung my harp upon the willows i knew all along there was but one alternative the cause of kings or of mankind this i foresaw this i feared the world see it now when it is too late therefore i lamented and would take no comfort when the mighty fell because we all men fell with him like lightning from heaven to grovel in the grave of liberty in the sty of legitimacy there is but one question in the hearts of monarchs whether mankind are their property or not there was but this one question in mine i had made an abstract metaphysical principle of this question i was not the dupe of the voice of the charmers by my hatred of tyrants i knew what their hatred of the free-born spirit of man must be of the semblance of the very name of liberty and humanity and while others bowed their heads to the image of the beast i spat upon it and buffeted it and made mouths at it and pointed at it and drew aside the veil that then half concealed it but has been since thrown off and named it by its right name 
and it is not to be supposed that my having penetrated their mystery would go unrequited by those whose darling and whose delight the idol half brute half demon was and who were ashamed to acknowledge the image and superscription as their own two half friends of mine who would not make a whole one between them agreed the other day that the indiscriminate incessant abuse of what i write was mere prejudice and party spirit and that what i do in periodicals and without a name does well pays well and is cried out upon in the top of the compass it is this indeed that had saved my shallow skiff from quite foundering on tory spite and rancour for when people have been reading and approving an article in a miscellaneous journal it does not do to say when they discover the author afterwards whatever might have been the case before it is written by a blockhead and even mr jerdon recommends the volume of characteristics as an excellent little work because it has no cabalistic name in the title-page and swears there is a first-rate article of forty pages in the last number of the edinburgh from jeffrey's own hand though when he learns against his will that it is mine he devotes three successive numbers of the literary gazette to abuse that strange article in the last number of the edinburgh review others who had not this advantage have fallen a sacrifice to the obloquy attached to the suspicion of doubting or of being acquainted with any one who is known to doubt the divinity of kings poor keats paid the forfeit of this lese majesté with his health and life what though his verses were like the breath of spring and many of his thoughts like flowers would this with the circle of critics that beset a throne lessen the crime of their having been praised in the examiner the lively and most agreeable editor of that paper has in like manner been driven from his country and his friends who delighted in him for no other reason than having written the story of rimini and asserted ten years ago that the most accomplished prince in europe was an adonis of fifty return alpheus the dread voice is past that shrunk thy streams return sicilian muse i look out of my window and see that a shower has just fallen the fields look green after it and the rosy cloud hangs over the brow of the hill a lily expands its petals in the moisture dressed in its lovely green and white a shepherd-boy has just brought some pieces of turf with daisies and grass for his young mistress to make a bed for her skylark not doomed to dip his wings in the dappled dawn my cloudy thoughts draw off the storm of angry politics has blown over mr blackwood i am yours mr crocker my service to you mr t moore i am alive and well really it is wonderful how little the worse i am for fifteen years wear and tear how i came upon my legs again on the ground of truth and nature and look abroad into universality forgetting that there is any such person as myself in the world i have let this passage stand however critical because it may serve as a practical illustration to show what authors really think of themselves when put upon the defence i confess the subject has nothing to do with the title at the head of the essay 
and as a warning to those who may reckon upon their fair portion of popularity as the reward of the exercise of an independent spirit and such talents as they possess it sometimes seems at first sight as if the low scurrility and jargon of abuse by which it is attempted to overlay all common sense and decency by the tissue of lies and nicknames everlastingly repeated and applied indiscriminately to all those who are not of the regular government party was peculiar to the present time and the anomalous growth of modern criticism but if we look back we shall find the same system acted upon as often as power prejudice dullness and spite found their account in playing the game into one another's hands in decrying popular efforts and in giving currency to every species of base metal that had their own conventional stamp upon it the names of pope and dryden were assailed with daily and unsparing abuse the epithet a p e was levelled at the sacred head of the former and if even men like those having to deal with the consciousness of their own infirmities and the insolence and spurns of wanton enmity must have found it hard to possess their souls in patience any living writer amidst such contradictory evidence can scarcely expect to retain much calm steady conviction of its own merits or build himself a secure reversion in immortality however one may in a fit of spleen and impatience turn round and assert one's claims in the face of low-bred hireling malice i will here repeat what i set out with saying that there never yet was a man of sense and proper spirit who would not decline rather than court a comparison with any of those names whose reputation he really emulates who would not be sorry to suppose that any of the great heirs of memory had as many foibles as he knows himself to possess and who would not shrink from including himself or being included by others in the same praise that was offered to long-established and universally acknowledged merits as a kind of profanation those who are ready to fancy themselves raphaels and homers are very inferior men indeed they have not even an idea of the mighty names that they take in vain they are as deficient in pride as in modesty and have not so much as served an apprenticeship to a true and honourable ambition they mistake a momentary popularity for lasting renown and a sanguine temperament for the inspirations of genius the love of fame is too high and delicate a feeling in the mind to be mixed up with realities it is a solitary abstraction the secret sigh of the soul it is all one as we should love a bright particular star and think to wed it a name fast anchored in the deep abyss of time is like a star twinkling in the firmament cold silent distant but eternal and sublime and our transmitting one to posterity is as if we should contemplate our translation to the skies if we are not contented with this feeling on the subject we shall never sit in cassiopeia's chair nor will our names studying ariadne's crown or streaming with berenice's locks ever make the face of heaven so bright that birds shall sing and think it were not night those who are in love only with noise and show instead of devoting themselves to a life of study 
had better hire a booth at Bartlemy Fair, or march at the head of a recruiting regiment with drums beating and colours flying. It has been urged that however little we may be disposed to indulge the reflection at other times, or out of mere self-complacency, yet the mind cannot help being conscious of the effort required for any great work while it is about it, of the high endeavour and the glad success. I grant that there is a sense of power in such cases, with the exception before stated, but then this very effort and state of excitement engrosses the mind at the time, and leaves it listless and exhausted afterwards. The energy we exert, or the high state of enjoyment we feel, puts us out of conceit with ourselves at other times. Compared to what we are in the act of composition, we seem dull, commonplace people, generally speaking, and what we have been able to perform is rather matter of wonder than of self-congratulation to us. The stimulus of writing is like the stimulus of intoxication, with which we can hardly sympathize in our sober moments, when we are no longer under the inspiration of the demon, or when the virtue is gone out of us. While we are engaged in any work, we are thinking of the subject, and cannot stop to admire ourselves, and when it is done, we look at it with comparative indifference. I will venture to say that no one but a pedant ever read his own works regularly through. They are not his, they are become mere words, waste paper, and have none of the glow, the creative enthusiasm, the vehemence and natural spirit with which he wrote them. When we have once committed our thoughts to paper, written them fairly out, and seen that they are right in the printing, if we are in our right wits, we have done with them forever. I sometimes try to read an article I have written in some magazine or review, for when they are bound up in a volume I dread the very sight of them, but stop after a sentence or two, and never recur to the task. I know pretty well what I have to say on the subject, and do not want to go to school to myself. It is the worst instance of the bis repetita crambe in the world. I do not think that even painters have much delight in looking at their works after they are done. While they are in progress, there is a great degree of satisfaction in considering what has been done, or what is still to do. But this is hope, is reverie, and ceases with the completion of our efforts. I should not imagine Raphael or Correggio would have much pleasure in looking at their former works, though they might recollect the pleasure they had had in painting them, they might spy defects in them, for the idea of unattainable perfection still keeps peace with our actual approaches to it, and fancy that they were not worthy of immortality. The greatest portrait painter the world ever saw used to write under his pictures Titianus Fazierbat, signifying that they were imperfect, and in his letter to Charles V, accompanying one of his most admired works, he only spoke of the time he had been about it. Annibal Caracci boasted that he could do like Titian and Correggio, and, like most boasters, was wrong. The greatest pleasure in life is that of reading, while we are young. I have had as much of this pleasure as perhaps any one. As I grow older it fades, or else the stronger stimulus of writing takes off the edge of it. 
at present i have neither time nor inclination for it yet i should like to devote a year's entire leisure to a course of the english novelists and perhaps clap on that sly old knave sir walter to the end of the list it is astonishing how i used formerly to relish the style of certain authors at a time when i myself despaired of ever writing a single line probably this was the reason it is not in mental as in natural ascent intellectual objects seem higher when we survey them from below than when we look down from any given elevation above the common level my three favourite writers about the time i speak of were burke junius and rousseau i was never weary of admiring and wondering at the felicities of the style the turns of expression the refinements of thoughts and sentiment i laid the book down to find out the secret of so much strength and beauty and took it up again in despair to read on and admire so i passed whole days months and i may add years and i have only this to say now that as my life began so i could wish that it may end the last time i tasted this luxury in its full perfection was one day after a sultry day's walk in summer between farnham and alton i was fairly tired out i walked into an inn-yard i think at a letter place i was shown by the waiter to what looked at first like common outhouses at the other end of it but they turned out to be a suit of rooms probably a hundred years old the one i entered opened into an old-fashioned garden embellished with beds of lexbur and a leaden mercury it was wainscoted and there was a grave-looking dark-coloured portrait of charles the second hanging over the tiled chimney-piece i had love for love in my pocket and began to read coffee was brought in in a silver coffee-pot the cream the bread and butter everything was excellent and the flavour of congreve's style prevailed over all i prolonged the entertainment till a late hour and relished this divine comedy better even than when i used to see it played by miss mellon as miss prue bob palmer as tattle and bannister as honest ben this circumstance happened just five years ago and it seems like yesterday if i count my life so by lustres it will soon glide away yet i shall not have to repine if while it lasts it is enriched with a few such recollections end of section fourteen